Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can you just do 12 hours, you know, and nothing else? And then they're a little bit surprised and say, that's all I got to do. For now, yes, you know. And then, you know, and B, in my third book now for children, I talk about this B is like, can you just reduce your starches by 10% a day, right? And, and people don't realize, then we do the calculations, you know, if you take the pasta, the rice, the bread, the potatoes, 10% down. Say, well, don't I need to get rid of it? Absolutely not. Don't I need to go low carb? Absolutely not. People on a low carb diet live shorter, right? And people, it's better to be, based on the Lancet meta-analysis, it's better to be on an 80% carb diet than on a low carb diet. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast, the show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. My name is Dr. Rupi. I'm a medical doctor. I also study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me on this podcast where we explore multiple determinants of what allows you to live your best life. And remember, you can sign up to thedoctorskitchen.com for the newsletter where we give weekly recipes plus tips and hacks on how to improve your lifestyle today. And my guest is the incredible Professor Walter Longo, an internationally recognized leader in the field of aging studies and related diseases. His discoveries include the identification of some of the major genetic mutations that offer protection from aging and many common diseases. He's Professor of Gerontology and Biological Science and Director of the Longevity Institute at the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And he's also Director of the Laboratory of Oncology and Longevity at the Institute of Molecular Oncology, the IFOM in Milan. He's quite simply the guy when it comes to fasting at the moment, and in particular, a method of fasting that he has coined fasting mimicking diets. Now, essentially, that is where you drop your calorie intake to less than 500 uh, calories per day, which is a crushingly low amount of energy per day over a five day period per month. Well, depending on how you're using this FMD diet, as is also known, it can be once a month, it can be once every three months or once every six months. And in his book, The Longevity Diet, 
He talks about the application of FMD for a number of different uh, conditions, uh, as well as generally healthy people, and really setting out the basis by which we can all improve our lives and live healthier, happier ones as well. Um, On this podcast, it's going to get a little bit technical, but I think this is going to be a good dive into what we mean by fasting. At the start, we talk about the different types of fasting, alternate day fasting, time-restricted feeding. It's something I get asked a lot about, um, and I thought I'd dedicate an entire episode to this whole subject uh, with one of the world-leading experts. He really is, and if if you're a fan of fasting, or or a fan of the research at least, then uh, you'll definitely know who Professor Walter Longo is. Um, We talk about the mechanisms of actions behind fasting, something that has been uh, an evolutionary adaptation we would not have survived if we did not go uh, thrive through periods where we did not have access to nutrition and so there are certain genes that have allowed us to adapt to quite troublesome environments the trouble is we are now exposed to food environments 24 7 the opportunity of eating is all over us and uh, we essentially indulge uh, over overeating one but also eating outside of a normal eating window which is something that we talk about too after talking about the mechanisms we talk about the utility of it now you'd immediately think of obesity metabolic syndrome perhaps type 2 diabetes but actually it extends to autoimmune conditions like type 1 diabetes as well as ms or multiple sclerosis and also cancer. Now, this is a tricky subject to talk about considering the lack of research, Um, but this is, uh, a lot of it is uh, theoretical, but actually there are some small scale human trials that this year may change the way we look at how we feed uh, patients whilst on therapies such as chemotherapy and immunotherapies as well, the novel uh, immunotherapies that we have access to uh, and have been game changing for oncology. Apart from the uh, mechanisms and the different uses, we're talking a little bit about uh, Professor Volto himself. He's uh, you know, Italian, as you can tell from his accent. Um, he's a, a lover of food, a lover of music, and um, he certainly eats the same way that I eat, which is largely uh, plant-based uh, with small amounts of animal protein. Uh, he's pescatarian himself. Um, and just getting to chat to him was a, an absolute pleasure. Uh, he, he can talk uh, <laughs> and it was great to just let him talk uh, and just listen to him and uh, I will certainly link to some of the papers and the book The Longevity Diet on the podcast show notes the last thing I want to say is um, this is uh, purely intended for information purposes only this isn't a recommendation that anyone should practice fasting and particularly if you do have any medical issues this is something that you should not do without supervision from a medical professional who's comfortable uh, with different fasting regimes or a registered dietitian or nutritionist. So uh, please do take this with caution. This isn't a massive uh, advert for fasting. And in particular, as we talk about water fasting and the potential dangers of that, that we talk about in the uh, the podcast, um, this isn't for everyone. Um, We don't know exactly which type of fasting, what dose of fasting is appropriate for what person. Um, but certainly there is definitely uh, scope to to look into the subject a bit more and it warrants more attention in my opinion. So uh, please do take uh, that as a warning. This isn't an advert for fasting and certainly if you have an unhealthy relationship with food, I wouldn't advocate uh, fasting at all. Uh, So 
uh, without further ado, uh, I'll uh, stop waffling on and I'll let you enjoy our conversation uh, with Professor Walter Longo. The podcast show notes will give you a bit more information and please do subscribe to the newsletter at thedopterskitchen.com. We give you science-based recipes every single week, plus lots more to help you live healthier, happier lives. I'd love to know a bit about your background, Walter, and uh, how you eat, because generally what we do with the podcast uh, is we get you here into the kitchen, we cook for you, uh, we have a conversation over food, we have a break, and then uh, we, we start the podcast. So obviously we can't do that today uh, because there's a pandemic going on uh, and you're like 11 hours flight away. Uh, but yeah, tell me a bit about how you eat generally. Uh, I eat pretty much uh, like... Um what I have in the book, which is uh, um, mostly a, a vegan, but pescatarian, uh, so vegan plus fish. And, uh, and lately it's uh, also, I would say vegetarian plus fish. So I do have some eggs uh, every week, just very little um, uh, milk-based uh, products. Um, and then the rest of it is, uh, I try to, the, my typical dish, is something that will have, uh, let's say, a little bit of pasta, maybe uh, uh, 60, 70 grams, and then uh, 300 grams of, uh, of legumes and another 200 grams of uh, mixed vegetables. That's something that I might have three or four times a week. Uh, so I try to combine, you know, understanding all the people that we follow, understanding the compliance issues, um, and trying to make it very similar to what they're used to. So having keeping the same components but at the same time, you know, switching to something that scientifically and based on epidemiological studies, et cetera, uh, can work. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a strategy. And, uh, and I use, um, as, I, as I preach in the book, um, I use the skipping lunch or having a, a very small like vegan-based uh, snack for lunch as a way to, uh, to regulate my weight. And it's been working very well. And of course, I've, I've been using it for lots of people. So let's say that last week I was a, you know, a couple of pounds over. Uh, I, uh, you know, then I skip uh, uh, lunch for about a week. Um, and that goes, in fact, I go a little bit underweight. Uh, and that's exactly what I want, you know, to keep it uh, pretty steady. So I don't, I don't have up and downs because uh, they're not so good. I usually, you know maybe uh, weigh myself every two, three, four days. And, um, and so I can always keep it very steady. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really similar to how I eat myself. I'm largely plant-based. I have a lot of lentils, legumes, chickpeas, beans, pulses. Um, and I love the, uh, in the intro to your book, you talk about the different, uh, the five pillars uh, behind how you came up with what is a good strategy for general healthy eating. Um, looking at epidemiological research and looking at the mechanisms as well. Um, and uh, yeah, that definitely sounds like a delicious way of eating too. And one that is quite achievable for a lot of people. Yeah, so that's key, right? Uh, lots of the things that we, the, the, uh, many come up with. Uh, uh, I remember always my, my uh, mentor at UCLA back in the early 90s. He was uh, uh, Roy Walford, who's a guru of longevity. But he was coming up with these dishes. They were raw vegan and... And I, I always looked at it and I thought, there's no way I'm eating that uh, for more than a couple of times a year. 
And uh, I, I just thought that to really make it worldwide, um, we have to come up with things that are much more reasonable for people. Otherwise, you have like a beautiful idea that nobody implements. Um, and, uh, you know, and provided that the, that the vegan, uh, that the raw vegan diet is in fact superior, which it doesn't seem to be. But uh, so I think, uh, yeah, trying to optimize the, the, uh, the content in, in a scientific way, but also in a, uh, in a way that uh, for most people would be pretty straightforward to do. You know? so, so, for example, you, know, you could do the same thing I described without the pasta. And, and yes, of course, you're going to have less starches in there. Uh, but to most people, they'll do it a number of times and eventually they'll abandon it. And, and if you have the pasta in there, uh, then that's, uh, that's something that uh, keeps somebody uh, more attached to it. And, uh, and eventually they'll incorporate it and it becomes a dish that they, um, that they eat all the time. Yeah, that, that resonates really well with me because I think one of the things uh, a lot of people don't recognize is the accessibility and the maintenance of a way of eating for a long period of time. And if you look at the length of time people actually uh, stick to or comply with a way of eating, that's going to be the biggest sort of indicator as to the, the improvement in health outcomes long term. So um, I, I really do recognize that in the book as well. It just It just sounds very achievable to, you know, skip a few meals, have a defined eating window and, uh, and learn a bit about the science behind why that could be uh, impactful too. Yeah, and, and that's the, the one you just mentioned. It's uh, another one of the big ones. Um, they made a difference uh, to lots of people that I follow uh, and uh, myself, you know, the 12 hours, right? So I didn't go as, as uh, Sachin Panda. Um, you know, there's the 16-hour type of uh, fasting. Um, I think that, you know, for most people, uh, 12 hours is, uh, is uh, um, good and it's good enough and it's very safe. Now, 16 hours, as he has shown, can be um, much more effective, but uh, uh, I think that you know the, the longer fasting periods can be used for uh, temporary use, and, uh, and probably not for long-term use, and both for compliance, but also for safety. And if you want later, we can uh, discuss the, you know some of the safety issues with uh, with the longer fasting periods. Yeah, no, that sounds brilliant. Um, why don't we kick off by talking about how you got into the um, the research area around fasting and how you got into research in itself, actually, because you, you tell this wonderful story about how um, you, well, it was, wasn't a wonderful story, it was how you saw your grandparent uh, die and actually they lived to a ripe old age in the southern part of Italy. Um, and that was sort of your first uh, introduction into um, life and death and, and, uh, and, and health and, and longevity. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that uh, maybe I, without realizing it wasn't something that I was thinking about all the time, but I, I certainly remember seeing people getting very old in Molochio and eventually Molochio became one of the, the places with the oldest uh, centenarian uh, um, prevalence in the world. And, uh, um, but then I thought about my, my grandfather dying much earlier, and I thought, that's impossible that, that now some of his friends are making it to 105, 107, 110, and he died a long, long time ago. 
so yeah, so that that was something that was probably very central in my in my mind, even though I didn't realize it. So I was a music student, and then uh, um, I think I was just waiting for the opportunity to get out of music and get into what I was. Uh, I mean, I felt I had to do, which was you know, how do you live a long life healthy? Uh, uh, he never got that opportunity. It sounds to me like it's probably the the most important thing we got, you know, living long and healthy. And uh, yeah, so then uh, the first chance I had, I always tell the story, they um, they asked me to direct the marching band uh, in the university. And uh, and that was my opportunity to say, I'm not gonna, there's no way I'm directing a marching band. Uh, so let me uh, let me go do what I, I, I like to do, which was, uh, you know, I switched to biochemistry and started studying aging. And, uh, and interestingly, I thought about aging first and biochemistry second, because to me, it was like, how do you live long and healthy? And then I thought, how do you, what do you study to do that? And I thought biochemistry would be the, the way to do it. So, yeah, so um, there, was, um, uh, there was the beginning. And then, um, you know, after my undergraduate, I went to UCLA and I went to UCLA. I came to Los Angeles on purpose. Um, some of it had to do with music, but most of it had to do with aging. And LA was really the, the central place for, for aging research, or certainly one of the, the, the most uh, uh, focused on, on the city's most focused on aging. And, um, and, and here was both Caleb Finch at USC and Roy Walford at UCLA. And those were, uh, you know, I ended up doing my PhD with Roy Walford and my postdoc with Caleb Finch uh, in neurobiology. So, yeah, so that was the. The coming to LA was really the, um, the uh, it allowed me to to uh, get together with uh, some of the best of the best uh, for for AG research, and um, and then of course Walford was the the, the world uh, top expert on on calorie restriction and longevity and nutrition, so uh, you know what better lab than uh, to to learn about. Uh, to begin to think about fasting, of course, Walford was not fa- uh, was not fasting. It was not uh, really talking about fasting. We're just talking about c- chronic calorie restriction. Um, but I was lucky enough. Then um, I left Walford Lab after two years, and I ended up in a in a biochemistry lab, where I in two biochemistry lab where I started working first on uh, uh, starvation in in bacteria, and then starvation in yeast. And uh, so, yeah, so then the Walford human color restriction, starvation in bacteria, starvation in, in yeast. I don't know, was, I was uh, drawn towards these starvation uh, um, studies, but I always was. And, and, uh, and I immediately started seeing incredible results. Like the bacteria, you starve them and they live longer and they became much stronger. And the yeast, you starve them, they and they did the same. They live about twice as long, and they became resistant to kind of all kinds of toxins. So yeah. So then I think that that together uh, I was set, uh, uh, you know, between Walford and these two labs, and um, I was set to uh, to focus uh, lots of my career on uh, on starvation responses. And just for reference for the listeners, um, Roy Walford was infamous for the biosphere experiment, where I think was it two years that they lived in this isolated environment and they actually had to calorie restrict during that time? Yeah, so it was two years. Uh, they didn't, they had to calorie restrict. Yes, you're correct. Uh, because it was not planned. Uh, but uh, the Walford, who was, happened to be the world uh, leading uh, 
experts said, you know, why don't we, since we're running out of food, uh, or we're going to run out of food. He was very clever. He said, you know, we're going to run out of food in about a year. Why don't we start, uh, you know, reducing the calories by about 25%. Uh, that way we'll have enough uh, till the end. And so that was the first, as far as we know, the first human calorie restriction experiment, um, which then was followed by another um, Walford student, uh, Richard Weindruck, uh, in monkeys, right? So my, uh, Weindruck then did the, Another famous study, monkeys at the University of Wisconsin, where they, for the entire life, for 25 years, uh, uh, color-restricted the monkeys. Um, yeah, so, so Walford was in Biosphere 2. He was the doctor in Biosphere 2. It was eight people, and they started color-restriction. And, and I mean, even though at the beginning, the results were ignored, not by us. But I mean, we knew uh, all the results, but they were ignored by the medical community. But they showed really, truly remarkable effects, you know. So some, somebody coming in with cholesterol 200 and after six months of restriction, that would go to 100. And uh, blood, blood pressure starting, let's say, uh, 120, going to 90, uh, systolic blood pressure, um, you know, and uh, on and on and on, fasting glucose. Now, the interesting thing was, and that's what I realized, I mean, I was there when they came out of Biosphere 2, when the crew came out, and they, they looked terrible. Um, and, um, and so, but I also started looking at the numbers and I started thinking, um, you know, if somebody started with fasting glucose of 82, is it really beneficial, um, to get to 65 or 60 fasting glucose? Probably not. Right. So probably they were pushed to the limit and potentially over the limit. And so I started thinking, um, you know, we got to come up with something that does not have uh, these potential side effects of and burden of, of chronic calorie restriction. So I think to me that there was the 90, 1992 exit from Biosphere was very uh, important to start thinking, we got to come up with something different because this is not it. You know, this is not going to be something that the world is going to do for the sake of having blood pressure and fasting glucose, et cetera, et cetera, in the right range. And that's uh, where I think there's been this explosion of different ways in which to mimic the effects of lot of calorie restriction, which is something that isn't acceptable to a lot of people with the different modes of fasting. And I think there's a lot of confusion about what fasting is and what the differences are between intermittent fasting, alternate day fasting, uh, FMD, fasting mimicking diets. Could we do a little bit of a whistle-stop tour as to all the different types and which one you think uh, we should perhaps focus on? Yes, yes. So first of all, I always say, you know, fasting doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's very similar to eating. You know, you never say to somebody eating is good for you. Um, so fasting is the same way. So fasting can hurt you or can, can be, have tremendous uh, beneficial effects. Um, and so the, the major different kinds are um, the uh, time-restricted eating, um, that we just discussed a second ago. Uh, and time-restricted eating is about, uh, you know, how many hours a day you eat for. And, uh, and now, for example, in the United States, and I'm assuming in the UK is very similar, it's about 15 hours a day. So people eat for 15 hours a day. And I always suspected the reason, one of the reasons for that was this, this bad idea of eat five or six meals a day, right? So somebody came up with that one. And then people say, you know, to eat six meals a day, I need 16 hours. And, uh, and that's what they did, you know? So, so now if you go, um, you know, certainly 
I, I say the uh, 16 hours seems to be very effective. There's a number of studies on that. Um, and, uh, um, and they are good for uh, sleeping, um, you know, improved sleeping, uh, and also improved metabolic markers. Uh, so the people that do uh, 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of feeding, uh, they tend to lose weight and, and do uh, much uh, better. Um, now, I recommend 12 and not 16 because, uh, it, of course, 12 will make, it will make somebody, um, uh, it will take much longer to have the same effects. Uh, but I like much more 12, A, because it's much more reasonable. So if you tell somebody, start eating at 8 a.m. and end by 8 p.m., I would say 90% of people can use that window and say, yeah, I could do that. I can do 7 a.m., 7 p.m., or 9 a.m., 9 p.m. You know, different people. In Spain, it'll probably be 9 a.m., 9 p.m. In, uh, in the U.S., it might be 7, 7. Um, and then also the side effects. You know, so, you know, gallstone formation, if you go from uh, 10 hours of, of, of fasting to 16, 18 hours of fasting, it doubles. And a, gall, a gallbladder operation. Um, and then if you look at the breakfast keepers, Study after study after study shows that people that skip breakfast do worse. Do worse for overall mortality, do worse for cardiovascular disease and potentially other diseases. So, uh, you know, in, in these discussions, um, of course, uh, you could say, well, skipping breakfast is not equivalent to 16 hours of fasting. Uh, but I would say most people that do 16 hours skip breakfast. And that's probably the easiest way to do it. And, um, and so could there be other reasons why they have these problems? Yes, but uh, it's not good if you start already with a negative effect, right? You should, you should expect something that is positive or, or, or very positive. If you start saying uh, people that skip breakfast, they tend to live shorter, uh, then, um, then it's, it's, it's not a good uh, risk to take. So yeah, 12 hours seems to be a very a good way to go. Then there's something called alternate day fasting eat one day, fast the other day, or eat one day normal, and then have a very low calorie on the other uh, day. Number of studies also very uh, promising. Um, I will argue uh, extremely difficult for probably 99% of the world population. Um, also, we don't know what the um, compliance long-term, I, I will assume for most people, long-term compliance is gonna be very low. Uh, but some people could do it. Some people could benefit from it. So, you know, that's something, if it works for, for, for some people, and I would say probably my recommendation would be use it only for a while, for a couple of months, get to the where you need to get, and it may, it may be fairly beneficial, and then move to some other strategy that we're going to talk about in a second. Then something uh, called 5-2, uh, uh, Michelle Harvey in, uh, uh, in, in the UK, uh, is one of the main scientists uh, looking at that. So two days a week of uh, uh, fasting, um, and uh, and Michael Mosley made uh, made it popular, um, the BBC journalist, um, by doing two days a week that are not consecutive. In just two days, eat about uh, 500 calories. Uh, so that looks uh, very interesting. Um, and uh, you know, especially if the days are not consecutive, the risks are. Uh, fairly low. Um, there is some concern about uh, sleeping pattern, you know, the, the, the food intake and the sleeping go together. What happens when so frequently you go back and forth from eat, not eat, not eat, not eat, you know, every, every third day, essentially. That's one concern. The other concern that make me think, you know, having lived the, the, the welfare attempt, 
uh, which you know largely is a failed attempt in in convincing people to do it. Um, so calorie restriction, eating twenty five uh, percent less. Why didn't it work? Well, I think that more, the great majority of people are not made to follow anything that is very frequent, right? So if you tell somebody, uh, you know, you got to do something once in a while, yes, they could do it. If you tell somebody you got to do this every day, every third day, eventually most people will abandon it. If it's disrupting enough, right? It doesn't mean everybody's going to abandon it, but I will say most people are going to abandon it. You know, I I have a difficult time telling people, you know, eat, uh, drink one last coffee or, or, you know, uh, drink one last drink. Um, so, so now if you say to somebody every third day, you gotta have just breakfast, uh, you see how, you know, if you thought about, I, I always have this rule of 10 people I know, right? I, yeah. I say, let me take 10 people I know and, and, and think about it and then propose it to them, right? Say, so if I take 10 people I know and I say, would you be willing every third day to just have breakfast? I would say most of them wouldn't even respond to me. It's like, <laughs> Why you, why you even say this? You know, what, what kind of an idea is that? You know, and, and this is not to put down the technique because I think, it can, again, can be very beneficial because somebody could be said, look, you know, you're 40 pounds overweight. Let's let's use the five to uh, to get you where you need to get. And then, you know, we'll come up with a different strategy for the rest of your life, you know, and, and it should you go back up, you know, then we, you can use it again. So, yeah, so it could be. It can be very useful in that sense, uh, but uh, but it's not something I think that people um, could do all the time. And then you know we I've been focusing, I've been thinking very hard about um, you know how do you how do you turn this into a, uh, something that's almost like a medicine, right? And that's where the fa- the periodic fasting and the fasting making diet especially come from. Uh, and so the idea was uh, you know again if I took a look at ten of my friends. Uh, what would they do? And and I think that the, the 10 friends uh, would be willing uh, to do something every three or four months uh, if I didn't tell them when to do it, but when whenever they're ready, whenever is the right moment. Uh, and so that's where the fasting making diet comes in. And so it's uh, first we started with water-only fasting. We did that, um, this is over 10 years ago. We did the first clinical trial with cancer patients and uh, and it was a failure essentially. Why? Nobody wanted to do water-only fasting, and the oncologists were very worried. Uh, yeah. So it was a concern on, on both sides. So then, then the U.S. government uh, gave us funds to do a fasting mimicking diet and said, well, can you come up with the technology that will allow people to eat and get lots of the benefits of fasting? And that's where the FMD comes from. Um, and um, yeah, so it, it, it's, uh, I think it's starting to hit all the, the different uh, requirements. Uh, meaning it's done, uh, we think uh, people should do it on average only maybe three times a year, you know, somebody fairly healthy. Of course, if somebody was obese and, uh, and had lots of other problems, the doctor can decide to make it much more frequently. But uh, on average, I would say three or four times a year. And, uh, you know, and it comes in a box and, and people don't have to worry about it. It's standardized. Uh, it's shown now, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred thousand people have done it. Uh, very safe. Uh, we're about to publish a survey from 400 doctors reporting on 4,000 people, 4,000 patients. Uh, yeah, so I think that I always thought if we have to, you know, spending lots of time, we now have, uh, you know, 25 clinical trials running, spending lots of time with physicians. I always thought, I, I understand, I, I, it took me a while to understand them, 
but um, um, but I always thought, uh, you know, I I, I uh, see what they want. I see what would uh, what they would feel. This is uh, reasonable, and I am willing to consider it. Um, and yeah, and, and reasonable to them was clinically tested, multiple trials, uh, standardized, uh, uh, safety record, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so that's what we worked very hard. And you know, after you know, 25 years or whatever, I think we're there, uh, at least with this. Um, and we'll see what happens. But, um, but uh, I, I, uh, I really like this uh, uh, possibility for the physician to have this in the toolkit and say, okay, yeah, I could put, you're starting to become overweight and insulin resistant, et cetera, et cetera. I'm gonna put you on three cycles of this FMD and uh, see what happens and, and see if we can keep you off drugs. Um, and, and if it fails, then there's a possibility of combining it with drugs um, or you know, just, just do drugs. But I, but I think that the, the key of the FMD is uh, really trying to reset the body um, you know, these five days have the purpose of reset a lot of the issues that may or the problems that and, and junk that may be accumulating in cells and in the body. And junk could also be in the form of cell, a bad cell, right? So an autoimmune cell is a bad cell. A precancer cell is a bad cell. A cancer cell is a bad cell. So it, it, it makes sense. I always say, you know, if you cut yourself, um, you have a, re- a repair in within a week or so, you cannot even see the cut. And so is it possible that in the inside of the body, we have no repair system? And, and then the question is, well, it, it clearly doesn't just go on on itself when you become insulin resistant or when you start developing cancer cells. So could it be the fasting represented that moment where you, you, have, you check everything and, and, and get rid of everything that is damaged? and then uh, replace it with uh, with the components that are not damaged. Yeah, I definitely want to get into the, some of the mechanisms, but I, I, I do want to uh, say that I, I agree with the uh, standardization of how we do nutritional research, because this is something that's lacking, I think, within the nutritional world. We don't have a set way of testing one diet versus another. You know, the macronutrient, macronutrient composition is always called into question by people, you know, considering whether this was really a low-carb diet or whether this was really a, a keto diet or what the different types of fats uh, were that we used in a particular study. Whereas with fasting mimicking, there's a clear, uh, like, product that's used which has uh, a certain number of calories and you can't really mess around with it and i think that's how you can standardize a number of different uh um investigations and use it in a whole bunch of different medical arenas which to your point is what we want as physicians we want that standardization in the same way we need that with medications um just for the like less than one percent of people that would be willing to undergo uh, water-only fasting, which I, I guess is perhaps the most extreme form of uh, calorie restriction or uh, um, uh, fasting. Um, are there any added benefits to water-only fasting uh, versus uh, fasting mimicking, or is, are there two just completely unequivocal to, to compare? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, people, of course, have, have been doing water-only fasting for thousands of years, like most, most, mostly because they had to, right? So they were, they, there was no food. Uh, and, and of course, if you're 12,000 years ago uh, and you're uh, having to go water-only fasting, that's okay. You know, you're probably going to have a, a life of, of 55 
if you're lucky, uh, and that's okay. Um, now I would discourage. We we I made the mistake of telling people to uh, allow also water only fasting. My first book, Italian book, and it turned out to be a disaster. Why was it a disaster? Because you you now you have to think about what what happens when millions of people do this, right? So uh, and my book was uh, was sold very well in Italy, uh, and and lots of people. It, it was almost like a you know national phenomenon. So now we got to see what happens when uh, lots of people do something that they're not supposed to do, which was water-only fasting. And you started seeing people showing up at the emergency room. You started seeing people um, you know, having lots of problems, which we didn't see with the more, much more regulated, both in the content, but also medically dietitian regulated. So the fasting making diet, the box, um, it always comes with either a doctor or a dietitian, so there was two layers of problems. You know, one of them, uh, improvisation. It could have been water only. It could have been some crazy juice or whatever it was. Uh, and two was like, I'm going to do it on my own. Uh, I'm not going to talk to a doctor. Why should I talk to a doctor? I'm not going to talk to a dietitian. Why should I do that? Yeah, so that, that was a disaster. And so we basically say, um, you know, then I realized why fasting every 50 years came around and disappeared. Right? So every, if you look at history, every 50 years or so, there is an explosion of fasting and then people die. And, and it used to be water-only fasting. Some patients die. And for example, one lady with multiple sclerosis in Italy, she ended up dead after the doctor uh, said do, uh, I think it was three weeks of water-only fasting at home uh, to treat multiple sclerosis. And she end up, ended up bleeding to death. Uh, so, yeah. So then that's just, uh, you know, one example. Uh, sh- had we pushed, by then, luckily, uh, we already had said stop doing any type of improvised fasting. Um, and, um, and so and, and nobody, um, you know, uh, attacked us for it. But, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's a problem with, with water-only fasting. That's a problem with improvisation uh, eventually, people get hurt, and then the medical community, rightly so, turns against that and say this is completely uncontrolled. On one on one side, we have FDA, we have a thousand people, uh, a random a randomized uh, clinical trials, um, we have you know safety data uh, on tens of thousands of patients, and on the other side, you have somebody going home and cooking it up and trying to you know with no medical supervision. Uh, and FDA, you have a, a prescription, you have from the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the other side, you have complete improvisation. Uh, yeah, you see how it has to end up in, in, in a, with a bad uh, result uh, and eventually um, disappearing. And that's exactly what happened. So, yeah, now the fasting making diet, people always say, oh, but, you know, Longo uh, is doing it because he has a company with the, the salt kits. Um, you know, and first of all, I, I don't take a penny from the company and all the shares are going to go to a charity. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't want to sort of compromise the method that I thought it was going to be the right one because people were going to attack me, um, um, you know, based on you know, the, I have a company or not. So, yeah, so it was important. And I know I stick with it. And, you know, and, and uh, um, but then again, as you know, half of my book is about things that you can do for free. And I also say, look, if you do lots of things for free, if you follow the first half of the longevity diet of the book, uh, and by the way, that also everything goes to charity. Uh, and, um, you know, so if you follow the first half, you're going to need a lot less of, of the product, right? 
yeah. and you might not need it at all. I mean, you know, maybe a couple times a year, but I would say, you know, when we looked at the clinical trial, people that were very, very healthy uh, at the beginning benefited a lot less from prolone from the fasting-making diet than people that, that started and not being not so healthy, right? So then, uh, yeah, so then there's a free option, which is the everyday option, uh, which will minimize the need for somebody to having to do the, the fasting-making diet. But because most people uh, don't, uh, don't want to follow the free option, uh, then I think, you know, the, 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 the prolonged FMD is, uh, for healthy people is a good way to go. And, you know, and I'm assuming we're going to talk about also the uses in cancer, autoimmunities. Uh, now we're, you know, we're starting trials on uh, Alzheimer, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think for those two buckets of people, you have those that will definitely take the advice in the first half, which is general advice, very completely evidence-based and will lower things like blood pressure. That is one of the biggest killers across the world. Uh, and then you, the other bit is productizing the, uh, uh, the FMD, the fasting mimicking uh, protocol, which you know will help those who actually need something to stick to and it applies to different people's motivations i wanted to before we start going into the different trials and the uses of fmd i want to talk a little bit about the mechanisms because i think there's lots of scant information in the general media about how fasting is good for inflammation or fasting is good for autophagy but i think it'd be good to sort of get an understanding of just the complex pleiotropic ways in which fasting uh, mimicking diets and, and alternative uh, uh, fasting can actually have these effects on the body overall. Yes. So uh, there, is an, there are a number of uh, uh, factors. Most of them we still don't understand. But, but I would say the, the major effect seems to be uh, A, pushing the body uh, towards uh, to the depletion of glycogen, so that the the glucose, the sugar reserves are gone, and then forcing the body to start taking from the belly fat, right? So abdominal fat, and uh, and that's this ketogenic, this this uh, switch into a ketogenic mode, uh, to a fat burning mode, seems to be um, one of the the important factors. A um, because um, it burns fat and not muscle. So in the clinical trial, we see that uh, basically the patients, the, the muscle mass, the lean body mass becomes a little bit uh, reduced during the FMD and then re-expands after. Now, now it, we, we don't have all the details, but certainly by DEXA, by, by X-ray analysis, uh, we can show that. And, uh, and so that's very good news because now you're burning fat. Uh, and, and particularly abdominal fat, but you're now burning muscle, which is really um, not present in, in all the chronic intervention. Usually you're going to lower, including calorie restriction, right? You're going to lo lower your lean body mass, and then uh, you're going to lose uh, uh, fat also. Uh, so, so that is a basic uh, switch. Now, the brain also eventually, uh, after day two, three, four, switches to this ketone body, uh, um, mode where maybe half of the energy is is no longer coming from glucose; it's coming from from ketone bodies, and the heart is also now yeah, utilizing fatty acids. So it's really a revolution of of metabolism, right? And 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 these new uh, requirements seem to be very important uh, for uh, potentially activating stem cells. We've shown this in a number of, of uh, models. 
but also uh, getting rid of, of cells that are um, not used to this fatty acid, ketone body dependent metabolism. So yeah, so then this, this cleanup reset uh, seems to be probably the, the major mode of, of uh, uh, efficacy. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, if you have a precancerous cell, but let's say that a, a, a cancer a cell now acquires a mutation in uh, RAS, right? And, and I won't be too technical, but it's just, you know, it gets mutated in a, in a gene. Um, now that cell becomes a, 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 a semi-rebel, right? So it starts rebelling. It's not quite fully cancer cell, but it's a semi-rebel. And um, it, so, so now when you're starving a system, the all cells in the human body in a very coordinated way. And why is it coordinated? Because it's 3 billion years old, right? So it comes from the prokaryotes that were fasting 3 billion years ago. Uh, and, uh, and, and so, you know, and of course we, we've maintained this response. So every cell in the, in the planet understands starvation, including the one in the human body. Now the cancer, the cancer cell, now it became a semi-rebel and it starts refusing to understand that I have to respond to fasting. So it cannot do that and survive, right? So it can, it can try to do that, but um, it's most likely going to die. Why? If, for example, uses a lot of the Warburg, lots of cancer cells uh, enter something called the Warburg effect. It's, it burn lots of sugar. And so now if that sugar used to be 110 or 130, 140 during the day, uh, the cancer cell is very happy. Warburg effect, you know, uses that moment to expand rapidly and then, you know, it can survive. If it goes down to 60 or 55, um, it's going to struggle and eventually it's going to die, right? So, yeah, so then the, the, the fasting, and particularly the fasting-making diet seem to be, well, the role of the fasting-making diet is to make sure that, you know, the fasting glucose doesn't go past 60, right? And the blood pressure doesn't go past, uh, let's say, you know, 90 or so uh, systolic blood pressure. Um, and uh, so that's very important. The, the, the FMD has the job of, of uh, um, you know, protecting the patient from going to a, too much of an extreme response uh, compared to the water-only fasting. The other thing that was interesting, um, and, and so what I just said about the cancer is also true for, say, autoimmune cells. So we've seen clearly in the mouse, and we're starting to see evidence of this in, in human trials, uh, that uh, that autoimmune cell Seem, uh, so, for example, last year we published that in people that had high CRP, uh, we also see lymphocytosis, so increased level of white blood cell. And, and only in those people that have high CRP, we see the cycles of the FMD bringing back the white blood cells to the normal level, right? So you're eliminating this inflammatory increase, inflammation associated increase in white blood cells. Uh, so, so it's, it's looking, and, and if you look at, uh, let's say, muscle cells and fat cells that are insulin resistant, we are showing very clear evidence in mice, you know, where we can reverse type one, I mean, um, both type one and type two diabetes uh, uh, symptoms. Um, but you also see uh, lots of evidence for that in humans where the insulin resistant cell now is becoming much more insulin sensitive uh, during, after cycle of the FMD, right? So, so in general, it seems like it's bringing the body back to its optimal function uh, is more useful function. You know? So most people don't have cancer, 
don't have diabetes, don't have autoimmunities when they're 18 years old. Um, and so uh, that uh, sort of ideal balance of cells and ideal function of cells uh, seems to be what uh, the FMD is working towards. Then, then one thing um, that we saw in the mice at least was that when we compare water-only fasting in the IBD model, so these are intestinal uh, inflammatory autoimmune diseases, um, so that uh, if we only use water-only fasting, we actually saw that the gut leakage increased, right? Uh, temporarily, but only temporarily, you see the gut becoming more permeable. And, uh, and it's not surprising because water-only fasting would be associated with no food in the gut. So it's okay to use that moment to make uh, the, um, the uh, gut much less uh, dense of cells, of villi, and then, you know, during the refeeding, become denser. Uh, but in the fasting-making diet, we didn't see that. Probably because of two reasons. One, uh, there's still food in the gut. And, and two, uh, the, uh, the food seems to be uh, giving um, uh, fuel to the uh, lactobacillus and other microbiota and other microbes that are protective. So now we saw a big expansion in the, lacto- in the protective bifidobacteria, lactobacillus, etc., um, and so we suspect it is the, the uh, prebiotics uh, the, that are contained in the vegetables that are fueling this expansion, which we didn't see with the water-only fasting. So, so very interesting, right? So now, and, and I think that my idea to combine the, the nutrition of the long-lived people of the world with fasting was the right one because uh, I didn't know all the mechanisms why Okinawans or, or certain Southern Italians live so long, but they certainly ate a lot of these vegetables. And so I thought, I'm not just going to make a, a fasting making diet uh, with any components. I could have done it with lots of components. Uh, I'm going to make a vegan. I'm going to make it using lots of these ingredients that are very common for all these longevity di- uh, areas. And so, so something they may be benefiting from could be this microbiota, these, you know, uh, the vegetables are now giving them a very healthy uh, microbe population in the gut. So just to, I mean, that, that was a fabulous description of all the different potential mechanisms. So just to put it into context for the listener, you have these different mechanisms of fasting. We're specifically double-clicking on fasting-mimicking diets. And the number of different effects can be uh, anti-inflammatory uh, reduction in uh, glycogen stores. You increase something called ketones, uh, which is an alternative fuel source. Those ketones themselves can have uh, impacts on the brain function, um, as well as changing gene expression as well. Um, and you have uh, the this impact on um, uh, glucose maintenance as well in the body, which have, again, uh, impacts on me- metabolism. Um, within all those mechanisms, one that I think is quite interesting is autophagy, which you described, which is essentially the cell cleanup of, of cells that are, are mutated or precancerous or um, damaging in the case of autoimmune conditions and the body essentially clearing those away and allowing the uh, production of healthy um, uh, cells from the uh, the stem cells themselves that that we have uh, generally in circulation yeah so autophagy uh, is probably part of it um, and um, it doesn't seem to be happening as much as people think uh, in the early days you know we uh, we think that most of it happens by day four, five, six, seven. 
so uh, the body uh, before the cells before having major changes in uh, major activation of uh, of these self-eating processes uh, uh, probably have to be in a fairly advanced state. Uh, but yes, autophagy is something we're studying right now. is uh, is certainly uh, there and it can be activated and uh, uh, and it's part of this general sort of universal program of shrinking and self-eating. Um, so yeah, shrink uh, not just within the cell but also at the cell number level um, and um, and stand by, have the stem cells ready to go and then when the refeeding occurs, uh, be ready to rebuild uh, the, uh, the, the uh, building essentially that uh, was taken down during the, the starvation period. And so there are a number of different uses uh, of, of your method of fasting. And I think um, perhaps the, the one that really caught my attention was cancer. Uh, we, we talked about this a little bit more because I think you must have had some pushback suggesting to patients who are undergoing treatment to reduce calorie consumption during uh, or post-treatment um, because the prevailing belief is that we need to increase calories or maintain weight uh, during uh, different cycles of chemotherapy. Talk, talk me through how that came about and what the kind of pushback was and where we're at at the moment with the clinical trials. Yeah, so the, the pushback was uh, uh, major at the beginning. Um, you know, as you said, everybody was under this sort of like old style idea. Uh, there was not really science-based. It was more, of course, you got to eat more because I see that you're losing weight and um, and, uh, and of course you're losing weight because A, the cancer is growing and B, the chemotherapy or whatever is, is having damaging effects, right? So if you reduce cancer growth and you reduce the side effects of the chemo, now um, you could actually uh, gain weight by eating less, right? So um, very counterintuitively. Yeah, so there was a lot of pushback and, uh, and our idea was like, okay, this is normal. Let's just uh, face it by doing clinical trials. Let's face it by publishing papers in, in um, mouse studies. And that's what we did. And then slowly, you know, um, it went away. Uh, meaning, uh, it, 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 well, I shouldn't say it went away. But certainly now we're in a different, completely different planet compared to where we were 12 years ago when we first published on this. Uh, so now you see some of the big, biggest hospitals in the world, biggest universities of the world uh, asking us, can we start a trial on uh, whatever use of the FMD and, and, and cancer, uh, going from immunotherapy, hormone therapy, chemotherapy, kinase inhibitors, et cetera, et cetera. So my guess this year is going to be three clinical papers published. Uh, some of them um, are a uh, you know, pretty good group of, of, of patients. There's going to be one uh, published in the next two or three months uh, from a Dutch uh, multicenter uh, group um, in you know, breast cancer. So you'll have to wait and see. Um, but there's going to be another one from Milan, another one from Genova. Um, yeah, so this year, uh, overall, you're going to see many papers on mice uh, and fasting and fasting-making diets and, uh, and, and uh, a number of clinical trials. And uh, I like to think of this as the uh, end of the beginning year, meaning that uh, this year it may represent the, the, the year where oncologists all over the world will say, okay, there's enough data to at least consider this, right? Okay, uh, I, you know, I, I, my patient is responding this way or that way. 
and I know I have this tool and I know I can use it. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll use it only if I need to use it, but, um, it's there and, uh, and, uh, and that's all. So to me, it's, it's a very important beginning year or end of the beginning year. Uh, and, um, we'll see what happens, but, but I think now, for example, now we're talking about 400, 500 patient uh, clinical trials, uh, with some of the top hospitals in the planet. And, um, yes, it's going to happen soon. And, and, uh, um, and so, um, I think that, um, you know, we did the right, the right way instead of, you know, going out and trying to, um, and trying to bypass uh, the, the, the people that were sort of standing against us. We said, okay, you think, uh, these are the limitation. Let's test it and let's see if you're right, you know? And, and of course we saw almost very little, uh, weight loss issues. Uh, we've now we've done probably a combined, but. 400 patients, uh, diff- many different can- cancer types, many different therapies. And this is as part of, uh, of formal clinical trials, right? So, and we really didn't see that. Uh, we, see, we see it uh, sometimes at the beginning and we have an exclusion criteria. If the patient has uh, uh, is, uh, BMI is too low, they're excluded. And if the patient um, loses weight and is unable to regain it back into a safe range, then we, uh, the clinicians usually uh, stop them from being able to do it again until they are able to uh, regain the weight. So, and it's really been a, a, a much smaller number than we thought, right? We thought it's going to be a pretty good number where we're going to have to exclude them. It didn't really happen, you know? So they were doing so well that I think that, um, you know, surprisingly low uh, number of, of excluded patients and soon enough we'll Everybody, uh, you and everybody will have the, those numbers, you know, see how many people were excluded because of weight loss and, and cachexia, uh, etc. Yeah, I'm, I'll be really excited to see what the results of those are actually later on this year. And uh, I'm sure you'll include it in the papers themselves. But I wonder what the patient acceptance of the FMD protocol was. Was it generally accepted and well tolerated by them? Were they excited about the use of nutritional medicine within oncology as well? Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, it, it, when you're trying to give this, if you're doing it in a very particular group of bias group, it could work wonderful. Uh, when you do it uh, with people that never heard of this, and there's probably, let's say, at least probably the majority of patients showed up and the oncologist say, well, you want to enroll in this clinical trial? And the patient said, I have no idea what this is. Uh, then we found out the hard way that, that you need a, re- a registered dietitian following the patient very closely. It, very closely doesn't mean that it means uh, two or three phone calls. Uh, it means a, a maybe one hour or whatever at the beginning when they enroll in the trial. That's it, you know, and just make sure they understand what to expect. What are some of the side effects? Some, they get headaches, for example. They don't like a particular food. Uh, yeah, they cannot be sort of abandoned and given a box and say, you're on your own. That When when that was done, we ended up with 34% uh, compliance uh, after, I mean, 80% compliance, then it went to 50, then it eventually went to 34 by cycle three. So, so almost everybody did one cycle, uh, but then it went down very rapidly. When we did it the right way, we, we stay up above 70%, even very long term. So it's a, it's just a, it's a method. It's not a, a hard method. It's a method. So the oncologist and the, so the good news is in the clinical trial, we couldn't promise anything. Now, pretty soon, I think there's going to be 
data, clinical data, and so the patient will be able to see, and the oncologist will be able to see, oh, okay, this happened in this trial. So I think I'm, I'm, um, I'm assuming that the compliance will go even higher when you be able to, to say, this is what has already been shown clinically to happen when you do this versus we're testing it and we have no yeah. idea what we're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what spared a lot of uh, people experimenting themselves with uh, ketogenic diets and glioblastomas. Uh, I think there's definitely a huge patient community, well, not huge, but there's a large patient community who are interested in trying different things alongside as an adjuvant to, to conventional therapy. Um, and I think it's spurred on by the knowledge that there are some trials out there that have positive results. Um, so it's definitely something to consider for sure. Um, I also wanted to talk about uh, autoimmune conditions in, with, in particular regard to things like um, uh, MS and IBD. Uh, are there positive results there that you can share? Yeah, so MS we published uh, together with Charité Hospital, the first uh, you know, preliminary uh, trial, I think 45 patients who were included. They had both ketogenic diet and the fasting-making diet. A single cycle of the fasting-making diet followed by a, a vegetarian diet. And, um, and that looked very promising quality of life uh, wise, uh, mostly in the FMD, also a little bit for the ketogenic diet. Um, and um, and uh, in the mice, uh, uh, also the FMD multiple cycles work better than the ketogenic diet for multiple sclerosis model. Um, for IBD, uh, there are now a couple of trials that are starting at uh, Stanford. Um, and so we don't, we don't have data. Uh, we also have a, um, a trial starting at USC for multiple sclerosis, one that has just started uh, uh, University of Geneva for multiple sclerosis. Um, so, yeah, so we have to wait and see uh, what happens in this larger trial. Th these, these new trials are going to have uh, imaging, MRIs, et cetera, uh, looking for plaque and plaque reduction for multiple sclerosis. And um, so, um, yeah, so it's, uh, those are better trials than the, than the one we did before. But uh, yeah, certainly it started promising. Um, let's see what, uh, what these uh, larger and multiple trials uh, show uh, for those. And I'm assuming that this, this way of, uh, of uh, fasting could be applied to prevent or perhaps even treat uh, neurodegenerative diseases as well, like um, Alzheimer's and, and dementia types? Yeah, so we started a trial funded by the Italian government in Genova and uh, with Alzheimer's patients. Um, and we're still at the beginning. I think it's only been you know five or six patients enrolled. Uh, so we'll see. But it, uh, And we're also going to publish, and I cannot tell, you, tell the results, but we're going to publish in two different mouse models. Uh, the results of, in, in fact, we're going to combine it probably the mouse and the, um, and the human preliminary feasibility data. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so get it out there and so that uh, other hospitals and, and centers can, can uh, consider starting their own trial. I mean, that's really been our style, right? Let's get it out uh, and let's get out the method, the protocol, the clinical protocol, uh, the preliminary data. And, and, and it's worked very well. Now we probably maybe over 100 requests for clinical trials all over the world, uh, 25 of which have started or are about to start and you know, 20 are in standby, but they're gonna start soon. And so, yeah, that, that's I think the, the way to do it and, and let, uh, let everybody uh, 
you know, come up with something that, um, that they're good at and that they want to test and excited about. And uh, we, we, but we have done, you know, we did follow them and we, did, we do follow them and make sure that all we learned goes into their trials. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's amazing to hear. And I, I know that it's going to be um, a game changing for a lot of people out there that are looking at uh, a standardized way of doing fasting, considering the known benefits that we uh, have learned from animal models and, and translating it into human trials will be super interesting to watch. Yeah. And now this year is also going to be, uh, we're going to have uh, an, an, uh, two more studies going to be published in the next six months. Um, one uh, was uh, hypertension and uh, sort of metabolic syndrome, uh, 80 patients, a randomized clinical trial. And, uh, and the other one is uh, it's a follow-up of a, a 2017 study that we did looking at um, uh, fatty liver, looking at an immune system, effects of the FMD and immune system. Yeah, so uh, this year, I think uh, you're going to see maybe uh, seven or eight clinical trials published on the FMD and different type of uh, diseases and also disease prevention. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're clearly familiar with Roy Taylor's work up in Newcastle with uh, very low-calorie diets. How do you feel that they might compare in terms of the efficacy? I know which one I would prefer to do if I was a, a type 2 diabetic patient. Uh, I would definitely do the one that's least, uh, the path of least resistance, which would be yours. But the, the data and the, the results from the second year of the direct trial were, were quite encouraging. Yeah, um, I think that um, when whenever you have something like calorie restriction, because that's essentially I think what they're doing, right? They're doing severe calorie restriction continue. Well, uh, there are some issues with calorie restriction. One of them is, of course, compliance uh, and long run compliance, right? So eventually, are people going to be able to do it? And you will argue if they could do it, they will have already done it uh, before becoming diabetic. Um, and, um, and the other one is some of the metabolic switches. So, for example, we know now from, from the work by Ravusin and others that um, the metabolism slows during chronic calorie restriction past the weight loss, right? So you lose weight and your metabolism slows even more than your weight loss. So now it, it sets you up for probably an epigenetic luck in which you, it puts you in trouble, right? Why are you in trouble? Because now... Your, your A, it's a very difficult uh, diet, and B, now your metabolism is so slow that you're struggling to even eat less, right? So you, have, you, have, you, know, you have to re- reduce it even more. And, um, and for most people, that would be very difficult uh, long-term. Um, and so in, in the, um, some of the data that I've seen for epigenetic changes or these changes, in metabolism, it could last for years, right? So now you could do something for several months, and if you enter a different mode, a thrifty mode, if you will, where your metabolism, your body's saying, we're in trouble here, food is coming in very scarce, I'm gonna slow down as much as possible. Uh, so now they could put you in a, in a trouble situation. So this is why, if you look at some of these papers uh, following the American, uh, uh, TV show, The Biggest Loser, you know, they published, I think it was a JAMA or New England uh, mm-hmm. paper. Uh, most of them eventually, this was a continuous severe calorie restriction for, uh, together with uh, exercise, a severe exercise regimen. And most of them had eventually regained all the weight and some of them regained more than the original weight, right? So that's a concern with, um, you know, both mechanistically and compliance-wise with I'm going to get you there. I can show you I'm going to reverse diabetes or whatever. 
uh, you know, by revolutionizing your diet and making you eat almost nothing. Um, yeah, I, we, we are, or the opinion is don't do that. Minimize the changes to the diet. Uh, you know, use the fast, the vegan fasting making diet to educate the brain to this new world, right? So, because that's what we see, you know, by the time a patients do two or three cycles of the FMD, the brain probably starts understanding how much better they feel after five days on this vegan diet. And so that brings most of the patients towards more vegan-based uh, ingredients. And also, it, it seems to be doing the opposite of this long-term severe restriction, which is the metabolism, at least in mice with Shone, uh, they eat the same and they burn lots of fat, right? So it's probably uh, keeping the, the body in a, you know, in a uh, catabolic mode uh, um, uh, longer, uh, at least for fat. And, um, so, yeah, so, I mean, at least for these reasons, I, I, I'm more, uh, I mean, but hey, let's see what happens and let's see how feasible some of these, uh, uh, interventions coming out of Newcastle's are in the general population. And, um, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, one is better than the other. I'm just uh, pointing to the sort of process that we went through in deciding, you know, how do we make it for everyone? How do we make it feasible to, for everyone? And how do we prevent these uh, molecular changes that could put the patient in trouble um, without the patient really understanding that, yes, I'm doing a lot better, but potentially, like the biggest loser, I'm doing a lot worse. It would have been much better not to be put in this, you know, however many months of, you know, exercise and and which everybody will say, oh, this must be great for you. You know, you exercise a lot and you ate very little and look at the wonderful results. And, um, and as you probably know, these yo-yo uh, yeah. effects eventually shorten your life. So it's better to stay overweight than, or obese than to go obese, skinny, obese two or three times in your life. Uh, now that's associated with a shorter lifespan. So, so yeah, so this is the science that needs to go into it rather than, uh, oh, I'm observing a good result. That must be good, you know? Um, yeah, so that, that, that's the only uh, uh, caution that I would uh, uh, bring up there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm, I'm totally agree, in agreement with that. Particularly with patients, I find the most effective way to help people change their uh, way of living uh, and maintain that way of living is making small changes that they can stick to and that's agreeable to their long-term goals. So one of the most effective things that I've done is tell people to eat in a rough 10 to 11 hour window or 12 hour window to start off with. And I don't even, I say to them, I don't care about what you're eating within that window. Obviously I do, but to start off with, just, just promise me you'll eat in that 12 hour window. And the number of people who then go on to make massive changes months down the line is fantastic to watch. I think it's a great method. You know, I think you're absolutely getting it right. You know, just stick, can you do, and I do the same thing. Can you just do 12 hours, you know, and nothing else. And then they're a little bit surprised and say, that's all I got to do for now. Yes. You know? And then, you know, and B, in my third book now for children, I talk about this B is like, can you just reduce your starches by 10% a day, right? And, and people don't realize, then we do the calculations, you know, if you take the pasta, the rice, the bread, the potatoes, 10% down. So, well, don't I need to get rid of it? Absolutely not. Don't I need to go low carb? Absolutely not. People on a low carb diet live shorter, 
right? And people, it's better to be, based on the Lancet meta-analysis, it's better to be an 80% carb diet than on a low-carb diet, right? So no need to go on a low-carb diet. But yes, you need to intervene on those carbs, on those starches particularly, the pasta, the bread, etc., by 10%. And 10% every day, it means, and use the scale to make sure you're, in, it's, you're doing it. Because if you do 10% for five days and then you, you overeat by 50% one day, then it's pointless, right? But I think if you stick with it, um, so then, you know, I think in my opinion, the overweight and obesity reversal could take two years. Nothing wrong with it. You don't need to show, you know, that in two months you can cure somebody, you know, get them cured for life, take two years of time. And by the two years, they'll, you know, get them excited. I think with the FMD, we get it excited because the patient sees the effect short term and is excited also about going back to the normal diet. Uh, so that's a, a that's a good way, right? Because if you see if somebody puts you on a Mediterranean diet, you don't really see the changes, and lots of people are going to abandon it because I don't see anything yet. Uh, so the FMD plus the small changes like you're doing, I think, uh, are ideal because uh, the patient sees the effect, and then they're more motivated to stick with it, and and the changes are so minimal that um, they they can actually do it long term. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for your time, Volta. I'm, I'm a massive fan of your work and I'll continue to follow it. Um, and thank you for making the time for this. Okay. All right. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Prof. He's an absolute superstar in the world of academia. In fact, Time magazine um, labeled him the guru of longevity, and that's for his incredible work that has spanned decades looking at the field of aging or gerontology, as it's also known, um, and the work that he's done in uh, FMD. And you can tell just from the reams of different trials that he's involved in that he is a pioneer in this uh, field, and it's certainly going to change the way we look at uh, medicine and nutrition uh, as a, an adjunct to, to each other. So um, I hope you enjoyed that. Just to recap, different types of fasting, alternate day fasting, water, day, water fasting, uh, time-restricted feeding, and FMD kind of fits in with alternate day fasting. Um, the mechanisms are anti-inflammation, they change the gene expression, they probably upregulate uh, certain genes that are protective, as in particular the situins. We didn't got to get to talk about that, but he does talk about that in some of his books. Um, autophagy, which is this process of cell cleanup, essentially removing cells that are damaged or mutated or just sort of hanging around and not really doing much. Um, and the uses uh, of this um, fasting mimicking diet regime can be applied to obesity, um, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome for sure. And there may be extended uses uh, in autoimmune conditions uh, and different types of cancers as well. Cancer is an umbrella subject um, and it, it can apply to a whole bunch of different disease states. So again, just to reiterate, this isn't an advert for fasting. We still have uh, very little evidence about the efficacy and we don't know the doses and whether it's appropriate for certain people or not. So again, just caution uh, with this. Uh, information that it isn't uh, for it's purely for information it's not for use and there isn't uh, uh, an advert or uh, a suggestion that everyone should be doing this um, we talked a little bit about the future as well 
check out his longevity diet. It's a very easy read where in the first part he talks about uh, the longevity principles, which pretty much marry up with mine. It's largely plants, lots of colors, plenty of quality fats, as well as fiber, fiber, fiber. And he's, as you can tell from his kind of ideal meal, lentils, pulses, beans is exactly what I tend to do in the kitchen too. Um, it's difficult to close this because I think there's going to be a lot more information around the uh, fasting sort of topic and I'm hoping to interview a few more people on this uh, subject matter in the near future so look out for those podcast episodes subscribe give this a five-star review if you enjoyed it and I will catch you next week Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.